The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. I think initially Ajahn Kobilo and I, uh, first I recognize some of the people here. It's great to see many of you. I saw many of you last night on our Wednesday evening live stream. Um, I think uh, initially Ajahn Kobilo and I were hoping to do a pair of talks on integrity and gentleness in speech, uh, suwacho, um, or uh, mudu is the sort of the word for soft uh, in speech, and uju, upright, um, and aligning those slightly with the antithesis of the negative forms of speech, namely lying, harsh speech, divisive tail-bearing, and idle chatter. But as many of you know who attended Ajahn Kobilo's talk last Thursday, we changed to Ajahn Kobilo's talk really focusing in on the simile of the saw and right speech in times of war, given recent events in the Middle East and honestly throughout the world. I think that was an appropriate move, and I hope people found benefit in, in that talk if people didn't get a chance to attend or watch it, then I really encourage you to look it up on Sati Center's YouTube channel. It was, it's one of the most meaningful suttas you can find in terms of just very clear directions from the Buddha on the level and breadth of heart that he expects from, from practitioners. And having that standard, even if we can't live up to it all the time is so meaningful when things are difficult. Uh, because if you can understand that the Buddha was hoping, was encouraging us to be able to be, in the words of the sutta, dismantled limb by limb, uh, limb from limb by bandits with a two-handled saw without giving rise to a single thought of ill will, then you can probably sit through a political discussion at Thanksgiving dinner with your relatives with a mind of reasonably, uh, reasonable equanimity. So it's, it was a really important talk, I think. To pair with it, I hope to go in this session focusing on right speech in times of peace. And to be honest, that really is just, uh, you know, it pairs nicely with right speech in times of war, but it hopes to, and I hope to speak to in this session, right speech, um, the basics that the Buddha lays out for our entire lives. And these are relevant, obviously, in times of war and times of peace, but they are a structure which is meaningful for us as practitioners, even in times of relative calm, because so much of the karma uh, we create the damage we do and the good we can do and the training of the path in the lives of a modern practitioner are, is through speech. So learning clearly the Buddha's directions on that is, is meaningful. So the right speech in times of peace, monastic and scriptural insights. One of the clearest 
directives the Buddha gives constraining what speech is wholesome is the four forms of wrong speech he lays out. And many of you will know this list, it appears often, but it includes staying from lying, from divisive speech, from harsh speech, and from idle chatter. And we'll go more into depth in each, uh, and one can read the standard descriptions in the handout. But for now, what I think is worth mentioning is that uh, of these four, the fourth precept of sila and ethical conduct basically only prohibits lying. And what's interesting about that is that there's an implicit acknowledgement that there is a time and a place for the other three. Um, so they aren't completely prohibited by the precepts. There's uh, a time for divisive speech in the sense of uh, what would be called divisive tailbearing, in that if someone needs to be warned about another person, if there's genuinely uh, someone who you feel is dangerous or could do harm to another, a friend of yours or someone you care about, then you might need to speak to that person about something uh, about your concerns of this other person. And divisive tailbearing is not slander because uh, it's true. These are true tales that you're bringing from one person to another. But uh, there's a time when it is appropriate. Um, or if you're genuinely concerned about someone else's well-being, there might be a place to bring it up to a friend and just speak to it briefly. However, this is also perhaps one of the most difficult for us as, even as practitioners, to hold in that it is the route to gossip, which is something I think most of us work with. And just to say that um, if one is to use divisive speech in one of these appropriate circumstances, which are somewhat rare, then to really clearly frame it uh, bring it to someone you trust, check your intention, and then say, look, I usually would not talk to talk about someone like this, but I, I feel like there's something I have to say. And then say it and then uh, end that part of the conversation, but carefully frame and constrain um, those moments when you might need to engage in divisive speech. But in general, it's, it's unwholesome. Uh, similarly with harsh speech, there is a time where it's appropriate even as practitioners, but once again, very rarely. Some of you might know the story of Mechi Geo, uh, an enlightened uh, Thai nun from the past century. And her meditation was taking her uh, down a path of delusion for a time. Uh, and her teacher, Ajahn Mahabua, one of the most well-known monks of Thailand, repeatedly tried to 
bring her back to her basic object and approach of insight, and she just wouldn't budge. And so in the end, he was quite fierce. And there are times when a teacher will be fierce, and that is an appropriate moment for harsh speech. But once again, it's very rare. And so often, anything that can be said with an edge can be said much better without. And an edge will change the whole course of the discussion. And finally, idle chatter. Uh, many of you will know that polyfit is sampapalapa, which is one of the best poly words in existence. It sounds exactly like the uh, type of speech it's describing. There's a good comparison of idle chatter to be made to, for example, bicycle grease, uh, something you need to put on the chains and the gears to keep it running smoothly. In that sense, social interaction uh, sometimes involves a bit of idle chatter, but uh, too much and your hands end up completely gummed with oil. So all three of those have a time and place, although it's very rare that any all three, you know, that the three, or we have to be very mindful of how much we're bringing them to bear. But lying is the one that the precept is against because it's never appropriate in a Buddhist conception. And it's worth noting that in the Jataka tales, the stories of the Buddha's previous lives, and for the most part, these tales are like, likely later interpolation. They uh, subsumed a lot of myth and folklore from Vedic India at the time. And, uh, but they're very colorful and quite fun. And it's worth noting that in all of those Jataka tales, the one precept that the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, never breaks is that against lying. He never breaks that precept. So we'll go down. And uh, Ajahn Kovilo spoke to the purpose of discussion, but it's worth touching on again here. For that's the purpose of discussion. That's the purpose of counsel. That's the purpose of drawing near. That's the purpose of lending ear. That is the liberation of heart through non-clinging. Anupada chittasa vimoko. And just to check our intention when we speak and when we approach a conversation and in what we listen to is our intention towards the Dhamma. And an embodied sense one really gains over years of practice is the trivial and the non-trivial. And that sense of this isn't necessary, this isn't helpful. And really learning to feel that in the body and mind it, be, uh, heed it. So this metric of aiming our speech, our listening, always towards non-clinging and practice and the liberation of heart is deeply important. And one useful thing to realize here is it also circumscribes the realm of what we should take in. And an important transition, and this does relate to idle chatter, is just the sort of media we absorb and consistently trying to replace more coarse forms of entertainment with more refined ones. Can we 
try to replace the political podcast in the morning with a Dhamma talk? Can we, instead of watching a movie on Netflix, can we look at the latest documentary on Tricycle? There are very clear ways of doing this. And you'll find sometimes the mind is too hungry for a Dhamma talk and it wants a bit some, it wants something a bit flashier. And maybe that's when you give it a documentary. And also if you're watching Netflix, it's not the end of the world, but this is a good thing to test yourself against is in any given state of mind, see how refined stimulus satisfies you and can satisfy you. And what we're aiming for is a tiered practice where you know your state of mind, you know the sort of food it needs. The Buddha compared the mind to a king and your mindfulness to a cook where you knew what to feed it at any given time. And just seeing how refined the flavors can you give the mind in those states. And then you get a good read like, oh, in the morning, I actually need a bit. My mind really is pretty agitated. I need to give it something a little more. Um, so maybe you listen to a account of Ajahn Suchito's Tudong through India rather than a straight Dhamma talk. And, but always this purpose of lending ear for the liberation of heart. One thing I wanted to bring is there is a, one of the states that the Buddha didn't disparage completely was the state of mind of fear because there is a place for spiritual fear um, in that when we break sila, the Buddha said there's five kinds of loss, health, wealth, relatives, right view, and sila. And of those five, he said the first three are trivial, health, wealth, and relatives, that we will lose those we love, our health will decline, wealth is up and down, and at the very least, we'll lose it when we die. But morality, sila, and right view we keep. And those are what is truly precious. And he was very clear that there's a place for being afraid of losing those things, or rather circumspection. And obviously fear can really be held wrong, especially in the Judeo-Christian context, where a lot of our culture has a certain trauma at the heart of it, dealing with hell and fire and brimstone. So holding these lightly, but just to say, there's certain, certain passages which really point to, which make one careful with one's speech. And this is one of them, is the results he as, as, uh, ascribes to wrong speech. Lying, when indulged in, developed and pursued, is something that leads to hell, leads to rebirth as a common animal, leads to the realms of hungry ghosts. The slightest of all results coming from lying is that when one becomes a human being, it leads to being falsely accused. So lying leads to being falsely accused. Divisive speech leads to the breaking of one's friendships. Harsh speech leads to unappealing sounds. Idle chatter leads to the words that aren't worth taking to heart. So once again, there's a reason this passage doesn't get quoted often because it hits the modern Westerner in probably a difficult way. Um, because most of us are self-flagellating enough already, and there's a lot of self-hatred and fear and recrimination already at play. And to be clear that the Buddha never praised guilt in that sense. There's a place for wholesome regret and moving on, but to dwell in the past with fear and guilt and self-recrimination is not wholesome ever. However, 
I think there's also a place to know these teachings because it makes you careful with your speech and you see the effects of wrong speech. You see how when you lie, often that karma comes back very quickly and someone doesn't believe what you're saying. Um, I've seen this very clearly with divisive speech is if I'm, if I'm engaging in divisive speech and gossip at all, it comes back in ways that are frightening. And it, it, it's made me so careful to not, to try my utmost to not speak badly of others. So there's a place for a wholesome, um, mindfulness around knowing what the Buddha called Hiriyotapa, conscience and concern. And so I wanted to put this passage in there, even though, uh, I'm hoping people don't hold it too harshly. Um, but rather just use it as one more guidepost towards refining this aspect of our conduct, especially when it comes to gossip and lying. I also like unappealing sounds. I don't totally know what that means, but I think it means your voice might be a bit annoying. So to go into abstaining from lying, the first of the areas the Buddha told us to refrain from wrong speech. Once again, this is the one that the precept is against. And also the precept the Buddha never breaks or the Bodhisattva never breaks in his previous births in the Jataka tales. I think part of this is because the precept against lying is honesty is what allows us to look clearly at our other failings and our other slips and correct. It's the quintessential mirror that allows all other difficulties or um, oversteps in terms of our ethical conduct to become, uh, to correct. So it's, it's a foundation for the entire path. And the Buddha indicates this very clearly. Let an intelligent man come to me who is sincere, honest, and straightforward, and I will instruct him. I will teach him the Dhamma. So forgive the gendered language, but what I think this speaks to is just, this is the Buddha's basis for a disciple, sincerity, honesty. And I think it means a lot to know that if we have that much if we have sincerity, if we have honesty, and most of us do, then no matter all of our other foibles, however else we're broken, that mirror will allow a lot of those things to correct themselves very quickly, more quickly than we think. And it's interesting to see people go through life and you slip up in your speech or your conduct and there's so much guilt or you really see it clearly when you begin to practice. And just to realize that that seeing of it, the wanting to be better, that is the mirror and the clear mirror that comes from honesty, right view and sincerity. And, and that's enough to do a great deal, that sort of mindfulness in terms of steering the heart. Um, so just to have some sada, some faith in that fact is important. The other passage I wanted to bring to mind is the Buddha's advice to Rahula, his son. 
Many of you will know this, but uh, this passage, but it's the Buddha speaking to his young novice son um, about honesty. And it's, I think, the first sutta given to Rahula. The Buddhist teachings to Rahula are really significant because you get to see his teachings to one practitioner through their entire life. You don't get to see that anywhere else in the suttas. You don't get to see the Buddha teaching that monk or novice as a young boy and then as a middle-aged or a, you know, a young man and then into arahantship. The only place you see the whole trajectory is with Rahula. And it's interesting to see that. How does one develop? What teachings does the Buddha give someone at different uh, stages of their development? And he begins with honesty and with a clear analogy. And that's two isn't supposed to be there. Then the Blessed One, having left a little bit of the remaining water in the water dipper, said to Venerable Rahula, Rahula, do you see this little bit of remaining water left in the water dipper? Yes, sir. That's how little of a contemplative there is in anyone who feels no shame at telling a deliberate lie. Having tossed away the little bit of remaining water, the Blessed One said to Venerable Rahula, Rahula, do you see how this little bit of remaining water is tossed away? Yes, sir. Rahula, whatever there is of a contemplative in anyone who feels no shame at telling a deliberate lie is tossed away just like that. Having turned the water dipper upside down, the Blessed One said to Venerable Rahula, Rahula, do you see how this water dipper is turned upside down? Yes, sir. Rahula, whatever there is of a contemplative in anyone who feels no shame at telling a deliberate lie is turned upside down just like that. And so on. Um, I'm going to skim past this just for the sake of time, but I do want to finish here. What do you think, Rahula? What is a mirror for? For reflection, sir. In the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, and mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. And the Buddha goes on to say that whenever one acts, one should reflect did this act have a wholesome effect on me, on those around me, and adjust accordingly? But one thing you begin to appreciate when you read the Buddha's analogies is the power of an analogy that comes from the enlightened mind and the mind of samadhi, because there's so much more to it than you think. So here, one interesting point is to note that when they've done research on habitual liars over a long period of time, a frequent symptom that manifests in them is spontaneous amnesia. And that's meaningful because a lie isn't to really lie well. You have to make yourself believe it a little bit. And in a Buddhist conception, why we hold this so sacred is because a lie isn't just some small thing that you let out into the world. It warps the very fabric of your perception and of your being in a way that perhaps is even slightly esoteric. And it makes you forget who you are. The mirror is warped internally and externally. And you stop being honest with yourself and then you forget who you forget who you are uh, in the sense of a, a conventional sense. So what's so meaningful here is the Buddha begins by teaching Rahula about honesty. 
And then he moves directly on to that reflective quality towards one's actions. And I think one thing that can be drawn from this is the connection between our external honesty and not lying and that quality of being able to reflect on our own conduct honestly and see clearly what's going on. Was that wholesome? And that if we begin to lie externally, then we warp our ability and hamstring our ability to perceive clearly the effects of our own actions. We lose our ability to reflect, to engage in the spiritual path. I think it's also meaningful that in the time of the Buddha, the most common mirror and maybe the only thing they had for mirrors was water. So when the Buddha's saying, here's this pitcher of water, maybe he's not just saying water in the sense of water that cleans one, which is also relevant with truth, but also water is what reflects. It's how you see your own face. And if a contemplative is empty of even that much water, then they're, then you've destroyed the mirror very clearly. So what seems to us like this analogy you read through and you're like, okay, it's an empty water pitcher. There's more going on. You've destroyed the mirror when you destroy your honesty. You've destroyed your mindfulness and therefore you've destroyed your ability to walk the path clearly. So the next is divisive speech or divisive tail-bearing. And once again, this is just such a significant one for us because gossip really is the Achilles heel for so many. And the beauty of people who manage to pull back from this, St. Teresa of Avila was known for never saying something around another person that they she wouldn't say to their face. And gossip provides a short-term sense of closeness because you're, you know, talking about someone. But you know well the long-term effect of a relationship which involves gossip because you know or you suspect constantly that person is gossiping about you. And even though not engaging with gossip can cause some friction in the moment over the long term, it really creates this sense of trust where someone will know this person does not gossip. They're not speaking about me. Um, and to expect that as practitioners, you have to make a very clear intention about that and that it's going to lead to some awkward silences and moments in your relationships that might be predicated, at least in part, upon talking about others, because that's a huge portion of what we talk about. Um, one skillful means I found is that if you have a certain person who really loves to gossip, you can come to them and say, look, I'm trying to stop gossiping. Would you help me do that? If you see me gossiping about someone, would you just call me on it? And you're not saying you're gossiping a lot, stop doing it, but they can connect the dots and they start to be much more mindful, but you're not calling them out explicitly. You're just asking that they help you. And I found that actually works quite well with, with people who tend to gossip a li uh, quite a lot is you're calling yourself out, but they come along. Oh, one thing to, sorry, quickly approach about lying before I move on is just how hard it is to hold in the professional world. I think a lot of us are quite good at it in our interpersonal relationships, but 
In the professional world, I think you may need to make a very clear intention to hold it. There's one practitioner we had uh, at a monastery or who came to a monastery who he went into a professional realm with the clear, solid intention, I will not lie for the sake of this career. I will not. And initially it, it led to him losing some business. But over time, he gained a reputation that like this person is straightforward. He won't lie to you. And his career was fine. It, it became very solid because of this. But it took a very clear intention. And often, uh, you don't know what will come from holding truth in your work environment. We had another practitioner who had to do a job review for Amazon. And they asked, what are your aspirations for your career here? And he had to answer honestly, I'm not that interested in you know, I don't really have aspirations. And he was really concerned about saying that, but he, there was no way out of it. He had to take the the survey. And in the end, his manager came to him and said, you know, we actually could probably offer you a four-day work week if you'd like. And that was a much better situation for him. It, it worked out. You don't know what will happen. And just to say that the being honest doesn't mean we say everything that comes to mind. You have to become skillful at how you say you have to, if you know something difficult, how you say something, if you know something difficult is going to come up that you, you shouldn't say, um, then rehearsing and coming up with a skillful means to hopefully avoid that, uh, answer that, you know, you shouldn't give, but without lying, uh, you can change the subject. You can come up with skillful phrasing, but it is a skill. And in Buddhism, the word kusala for, uh, good, basically means skillful. It's etymologically related to the word for kusa grass, which was a kind of grass that you uh, grasped to pick, um, to pull it up. It was very sharp. So to pull it without cutting yourself, you had to do it skillfully. And all of these are applied skills. It takes a, it takes a certain um, experience and skill set to hold these precepts, to speak well. And you should expect that you're going to make some slips and you need to learn how to do it. Um, it, and it, you'll refine over time. I mean, we're all refining to the very end. Um, but you know, we had a, one monk who went to, uh, another monastery after they just built a big meditation hall. And he asked the abbot there, what do you think of the new meditation hall? And the abbot, um, turned to a nearby statue and said, have you, have you seen the statue? We just got it put in. And, and that was, that was it. And to know how to like completely change the subject at the right time and just avoid, you know, you don't want to be dishonest um, in, in the sense of you don't want to try to wiggle around things, but there's times when you won't be able to say what, what you'll have to work skillfully with not saying everything that's on your mind. And and yet there's something so powerful about your spouse, your loved one, your friend, knowing they can turn to you and say, did you cheat on me? Or please tell me honestly, what do you think of this? And then knowing completely you will not lie to them. And that's why we hold that precept at its most fundamental. And you expand that realm of honesty as far as you can. Um, but you always hold that core. I think that's really significant. Okay, back to divisive speech. So 
just working with gossip, understanding the power of avoiding it. Um, and I really love this sutta. This is one of those ones that just echoes in your head over years. Um, but I've also been talking a lot. So I'm curious, would anyone here be willing to raise their hand and actually read it for, for the group? Raise your electronic hand if you want to pop to the top. It's nice to bring in other voices on suttas. Be bold. Vanessa, please. When speaking about oneself and others, begins with parallel verses on a person of no integrity. Now, a person endowed with these four qualities can be known as a person of integrity, which for there is the case when a person of integrity, when asked, does not reveal another person's bad points to say nothing of when unasked. Furthermore, when asked, when pressed with questions, he is one who speaks of another person's bad, bad points in not in full, not in detail, with omissions holding back. Then again, a person of integrity, when unasked, reveals another person's good points, to say nothing of when asked. Furthermore, when asked, when pressed with questions, he is one who speaks of another person's good points in full and in detail, without omissions, without holding back. Then again, a person of integrity, when unasked, reveals his own bad points, to say nothing of when asked. Furthermore, when asked, when pressed with questions, he is one who speaks of his own bad points in full and in detail, without omissions, without holding back. Then again, a person of integrity, when asked, does not reveal his own good points, to say nothing of when unasked. Furthermore, when asked, when pressed with questions, he is one who speaks of his own good points, not in full, not in detail, with omissions, holding back. Sadhu, Vanessa, thank you for being bold. <laughs> so I love that sutta. And it reminds me of a quote by Epictetus, uh, the Greek philosopher, who said that if someone comes to you reporting the uh, criticism of another person, saying this person criticized you, you should say, they only said that much. If they'd known all my bad points, they would have said far more. And I just love that, like leaning into the wind in this. And it's so beautiful when you see, you know, someone who's really devoted to harmony, um, who really values it. Uh, many of you will know the, uh, under the heading of harsh speech here, and it's antithesis being suvacho, which Ajahn Kovilo spoke to. Uh, this quality being easy to speak to, soft, um, a real, um, I totally forgot where I was going with that comment. Well, never mind. We'll just keep on going until we get there. <laughs> um, we had a, another image from 
the Petavatu uh, about a ghost who uh, is clothed in garlands, but uh, he eats the flesh off of his own back. Um, and when asked why he does that, it said that he spoke, um, I insulted others behind their backs. As a result of speaking behind others' backs, today I have to eat the flesh off of my own back. You have now seen how I am suffering, Narada Bhante. Now I see the truth of the words of the wise and compassionate Buddhas. I can tell you now, do not break friendships, do not tell lies. You may and may you not have to eat the flesh off your own back like I do. So that's from the Petavatu, which is in the Kudaka Nikaya and is a later text. It's, this is not the Buddha's words. I have a lot of skepticism about the reality of many of these particular later texts. But it's a good image to hold, um, not to terrify ourselves, but just to, with the Buddhist cosmology, which is so colorful, it's helpful to take them as analogies um, or really powerful images. Uh, I mean, we believe that they're real largely as, as well um, in the sense of the ones the Buddha spoke to. But these images are just powerful recollections. Like, is that really how we want to speak with the world? Do we want to eat the flesh off of our own backs by speaking behind others? So abstaining from harsh speech, the third. And um, Ajahn Kovilo spoke to this a bit, or quite a bit actually, in his talk last week, uh, this quality being suvacha, easy to speak to. So I'll center less on this quality because he did such a great job of talking about it. But this ability of being easy to admonish and gentle, um, this is, I think, where so many, uh, so much of our speech really refines as we practice. And we begin to understand how, as we develop in the Dhamma, our metric for correct conduct is less about the words right and wrong and much more about the words beautiful and unbeautiful. And you know certain ways of speaking that aren't explicitly wrong, but they're just unbeautiful. They kind of leave this sense like, I don't know if that was necessary. And this refines over time. So sharp banter um, or banter, uh, sarcasm, etc., this is the language of so much of the world and just accept it. And people don't even know what it would feel or look like to not speak to each other that way. But as you practice, you really realize it is harsh speech and it's not necessary. And there's a real beauty to someone who doesn't do that. Because often those barbed comments, even if joking initially, carry weight and they can, they can really wound. Um, so there's just this quality of how beautiful can you make your speech? Um, Ajahn Jayasaro says four letter words hurt to hear in a monastery. And that's true. Can we give up cussing? Can you work to speak quietly instead of loudly, slowly, instead of quick? Uh, this is just a way to refine and soften and not just refrain from harsh speech, but more and more move towards gentle speech. And one thing I think worth pointing out here is 
the beauty of questions. And if people haven't read Oren J. Sofer's Say What You Mean or other nonviolent communication books, I think they're worth approaching because they really parse out this difference um, between harsh speech and uh, how to approach with curiosity and questions a conflict. I'll actually jump here to the end of the document where I've listed something I think which is relevant to harsh speech. And that is the conditions for admonishment in the Vinaya. So these are conditions a monastic has to fulfill before they admonish another monastic. Uh, this is in the Chulavaga. So it's uh, sort of a text that surrounds the Vinaya, the monastic code. So before one admonishes or gives feedback to another monastic, one has to be pure in bodily conduct, pure in verbal conduct, motivated by goodwill, learned in the Dhamma, and know the Padimokas, the Vinaya code. So that's a, a high standard. And I think one could extrapolate it to a lay life by speaking to um, a general sense of one's purity and groundedness, goodwill, and uh, a certain groundedness in Dhamma and um, their own ethical conduct. But it goes on. Furthermore, one determines that I will speak at the right time, not at the wrong time. I'll speak about what is factual, not what is unfactual, gently, not harshly, connected to the goal or the issue at hand, not unconnected to the goal, and from a mind of goodwill. And then one has to ask and receive permission. So in terms of constraining harsh speech, this is just so helpful because when one approaches a conflict with even a sliver of anger, it changes everything. The person senses that anger. And to have this wall of vinya, and this is a good piece of structure to put in place with a spouse, with a friend, with everyone in your life. Because so often, if that wall is there, then your reaction has time to turn into a response. And you'll often find that that goodwill quality metric requirement, it take, you know, I know one monk who's had to wait a whole year before giving admonishment for that to be fulfilled, but it's powerful because often, like, if you just wait an hour, you find you have this spaciousness and you can really approach the conversation from a whole different place of curiosity, or maybe you have to wait a day or a week, but it's worth it because then you can be sure about where you're coming from. And if you just don't have that capacity for goodwill there, then having someone else approach the person. Um, and also this also puts up a nice wall where often when you wait, you find that especially if they're a practitioner, they catch themselves, their mindfulness catches them. You can trust people to figure stuff out to some extent. And so often it's useful to have a bit of a three strikes before you bring it up rule. Just see if they figure this out and just be a kind mirror to them. But I really encourage people to consider these conditions for admonishment in their relationships. They're so helpful to avoid harsh speech. And finally, we'll go to, um, oh, and once again, Ajahn Kovilo spoke about many things, including this beautiful sutta about Venerable Anuruddha living with uh, 
his companions. And just because I can't help but not read it, or I can't not read it, I, I love it so much. Um, the Buddha asks, I hope, Anuruddha, that you are living in concord with mutual appreciation, or it says, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Yes, Venerable Sir. But Anuruddha, how do we live? you live thus? Venerable Sir, as to that, I think thus, it is a gain for me, it is a great gain, that I am living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards those venerable ones, both openly and privately. Verbal acts, openly and privately. Mental acts, openly and privately. And I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, venerable sir, but one in mind. And to conceive of your relationships as this form of giving and giving up control to an, you know, an appropriate extent and doing what the other person wants to do and taking it as a training, it's dawning, it's more, real Donna hurts a little bit. So if you're coming up against that limit where you're like, I really would like to go to this restaurant. I know they want to go to this restaurant instead. You know, I, I probably, it's my turn. Can you push, can you know that that sense that it hurts a little bit to give up the restaurant choice? Can you take that as a sign that you should do it as a practitioner? You want it to hurt a little bit. So this is giving. And it's significant that in the whole Pali Canon, there's four or five suttas, I think, where the levels of heaven resonate upwards. The choirs of angels echo something that's happened. And I believe it's at the Buddha's birth, the Buddha's enlightenment, uh, and there's other moments like the first teaching. This sutta is one of the few moments where that same echoing happens. And I think in some ways it's a way of the scriptures acknowledging this is significant. Remember this. This is how you live with those you love. So finally, we'll end with idle chatter and avoiding it. Words not worth treasuring. He engages in idle chatter, speaks out of season, speak what, speaks what isn't factual, what isn't in accordance with the goal, with the Dhamma and the Vinaya, words that are not worth treasuring. And then just a beautiful Dhammapada verse on how a thousand useless words, better than a thousand useless words, is one useful word, hearing which one attains peace, and so on. For the sake of time, I won't go through them all. Idle chatter is a meaningful one to investigate. First of all, it's not to be held too draconian. Uh, there's most monks I know have gone home for their first visit and sort of sat silently at the dinner table while everyone was awkward and they wouldn't say anything that wasn't, you know, profound. They felt was sort of profound insight and it leads to very awkward uh, meals with your family. And so it's okay to have a little bit of idle chatter because it's not actually pointless. It has a purpose to sort of make people feel comfortable. People want to talk about the weather, whatever. But there is a limit and there's a place to just step away from that at times. And there's a place to acknowledge that a lot of people in our lives, this they're not interested in talking about the latest Bonte Analia book or what your insight was recently from the suttas or how your meditation practice is going. 
They want to talk about what's on Netflix or the news um, or their kids. And as practitioners, it's really worth coming into that with a mind of loving kindness and understanding that everyone has the four noble truths hidden in them. And can you make it almost a game? Can you find someone's Dharma language and ask questions until you find it? What's meaningful to them? It's very common to meet nice people. It's very hard. It's much more rare, much rarer to meet curious people. And people want so badly to be seen. So can this be your gift to someone is when you're in conversation with the person who you don't quite know what to talk about, you don't have really have a shared interest, lean into them, ask them questions, make it your act of metta. What do they care about? Investigate, find their suffering and their happiness and their loves and, and really see if you can make it a skill. It, it takes skill, but if people feel seen, you might just have talked about the Seahawks for, you know, um, I'm in Seattle, whatever's going on in California, I don't know, um, in terms of sports, but you might just have talked about football for 10 minutes, but maybe they actually felt seen from it. And can you make it a, almost a game? Like, can you find someone's heart through conversation? And that's an act of deep metta, listening. Um, people want so badly to be seen. And you can steer that with questions. Um, but this is how you can work with people who, by all external you know, appearances, you would have no choice but to just engage in idle chatter with. Is There's a way of finding your way to something real. So we're coming to the end of this. But... I just wanted to end with one thing that I found very helpful, and it's a sutta, Majjhima Nikaya 103, where the Buddha speaks about how a monastic should heal a rift between other monastics. And after saying how this bhikkhu does it, he says that if that bhikkhu is questioned, how did you heal this rift? He shouldn't say, I came to the monastics and I spoke to them, lauding himself, but rather he should say, Here, friends, I went to the Blessed One. The Blessed One taught me the Dhamma. Having heard that Dhamma, I spoke to those bhikkhus. The bhikkhus heard that Dhamma, and they emerged from the unwholesome and became established in the wholesome. So note how it steers it back to Dhamma. And, you know, if people compliment, you know, people sometimes will compliment uh, monastics on their talks. And I've just found it so helpful to just steer it right back, be like, it it's the teachings that are beautiful. We are so blessed to have these. And if you can create a channel for praise, for giving, for gratitude, right back to the Buddha, it's so meaningful. It lets you get out of the way. So if someone, you know, is like, thank you for giving me this book or thank you for what you said, you, it's interesting to see, like, can you steer it back to the Dhamma? Can you say, you know, my teacher taught me this, or I read this in this beautiful Dharma book and it just, yeah, it helped me, so I thought maybe it would help you. Steer it back to the Dhamma always. And that's how we keep the conduit to our lineage and our teacher and how we root ourselves in this deep wellspring of truth that manifests and spreads out in this sort of foliage of, of a involved life that does touch the world um, through speech but is rooted in this deep wellspring of truth and wisdom and metta. So... I wish you all the best in that path and practice and uh, hope that people take this realm of speech as one that can 
purify the heart to an amazing extent if it's really taken on as a primary forum for their practice. <laughs> so we have some time for Q&A now. Um, if people have some questions they'd like to bring up or anything you'd like to discuss, we have about 15 minutes. There's a lot of material, um, so I hope it wasn't too much, but, but that's what you get with handouts, apparently. So, And if people are on edge about talking about something or bringing up something personal, like a, a real situation in their life, these don't have to be academic questions. It can just be, yeah, my boss is a jerk and I do not know how to deal with that situation. But if it's in your heart or... My boss seems like a jerk. Uh, we don't really believe anyone's deep down a jerk, um, sort of. Anyways, if you bring it up, uh, odds are others are struggling with it too. So it's a gift to the group if you're on the edge of asking something to, to bring it forward. Deborah. Thank you so much for this talk, Ajahn. I actually was going to compliment it, but then I heard you were saying I should redirect it to complimenting <laughs> the Buddhist teachings. But um, um, but you, you know what's really interesting about right speech is that I've talked with several friends recently about um, about right speech in this time of um, all this conflict in the world. And these are people who don't know anything about Buddhism, and they were like, wow, this is amazing. This is so simple. I wish, you know, everybody was taught this. So I really think just even the topic of right speech is something that um, people really want and need, really value. Thank you for bringing that up. It's interesting. People sort of hear about Buddhism and they're like, oh, it's kind of cool. You know, I've seen a Buddha image in someone's lawn or, you know, uh, it seems kind of hip. Um, interesting. It takes... A lifetime, many lifetimes, just to, the teachings are so profound. And to have this clarity, these many tools, these many lists, I think we can take it for granted if we don't stop and think 2,500 years ago, the Buddha laid out these structures for us. And part of his teaching lacks some of the poetry you find in other traditions. I mean, but there's beautiful images and beautiful poem, poems as well. But the clarity is different and it's so much about praxis. It's, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's utterly unique. I've never encountered anything like it. So yeah, it, what you said makes complete sense. Having these structures, the four noble truths or all these helpful things around speech, it's just so helpful, um, for training. So I'm grateful that your friends saw that. Robin. Hi, Ajahn Isabo. Um, this is, comes at a perfect time. Um, I had a situation this past weekend with my oldest sister. And um, even though I'm trying very hard to practice right speech, right view, right actions. Um, a, a button got pushed in our conversation 
I called to wish her a happy birthday and um, she, the, the conversation escalated in, in an intensified just because of her patterns of negativity and toxicity. And I just kept trying to have compassion and, and let her comments like go through me and not really engage or judge or just have compassion. But um, it was, <laughs> it was intensifying. And then she started to say things about my other sister um, that were very mean and harmful. And um, she just kept going and no matter what I tried to change the subject and that sort of thing, it just it wasn't working. And then she just said something that just hit the, the nerve. And I said something um, in response and then my voice raised to match hers. And then was he, I was yelling and um, I, she, she hung up on me <laughs> and then I blocked her. <laughs> and I was angry for a while that the conversation went that way, but um, so much guilt and remorse set in because I've been working so hard with it and I just felt like I failed and um, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to do. I don't like the fact that I, I think the thing I was most upset about actually was my losing my cool mm -hmm. and saying, uh, raising my voice and, um, yeah, uh, without getting into detail. And so, like, I don't know whether, I don't know what to do. I'll just leave it at that. Thank you, Robin, for sharing that. I think uh, we've all been about about right there with family. There's a famous Buddhist saying that if you're if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family. And I know that uh, for me, a lot of negative impressions and experiences it's like they're waves hitting your feet on the shore and you're, you know, you're kind of keeping your balance. But when you're with your family, I've heard someone say this, it's like you find the tides risen without you seeing it and you're up to your waist. You know, it, it's, these are deep Sankara. Um, and to really expect that and to have compassion for yourself. I mean, these are Sankara from the deepest wounds of, of childhood and, and also your sister, you know, how we define ourselves sometimes is by pushing against people and those, you know, kind of that deepest strata of individuation and pushing against and needing to be validated and, and wanting you to react to her. Like, it's just so much in, in family. And, and I think it's... Uh, it's why filial piety is held up so much in Buddhism, because unless you put a sacred framework around family, there's so many sankharas at work, it's almost impossible for it not to rip itself apart. Yeah. So that's why we make it sacred. And 
And so I think now holding it to some extent, I mean, this isn't your parents and that's even, a, that's a very special relationship, but there's something here. So I think first of all, uh, just forgiving yourself as much as you can. Um, this is really common. Longpore Cha said that 80% of the practice is knowing you should let go of something and not being able to. Mm. Um, and also you'll notice a lot of the chewing over it's not wanting to admit guilt. Maybe, maybe like being like, well, like she was just being a jerk. Like I, I mean, you know, and, and there's something to be said for just saying, yeah, I, I really, and I, I know you're saying this right now, but just like, I really messed up. I, I get it. And coming to her with that, be the first to apologize. Just there's nothing to lose because we always could have done a little better. Um, and and just really leading with that because it's so disarming to that person. Um, so so yeah, seeing if there's a way you can do that, and if she's blocked you on the phone call, then write her a letter or send her a little gift, just something, you know. But 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 you know, I think as a pra- and it's helpful to remember if we have this much trouble holding our cool as practitioners with these teachings and resources and practice, like how much harder for people who don't have any of those things and how can we expect more of them in the brothers Karamazov, uh, father Zosima, the head priest says you should think of others as children or as patients in a hospital. And I think that's really, we're saying the Buddha said the only people that aren't mentally ill are the Arahants. The rest of us are just in various states of derangement, you know, and, and also really look at the conditionality behind your sister. Like, you know, my, my family has some issues too. And just knowing the pain my, my sister went through and how that wound must just be with her. It, it just opens my heart every time I think of it. And, and, um, and also to notice the word with the Brahma Viharas, there's always a representative of wisdom in most of the Buddhist lists and equanimity is that one in the Brahma Viharas. But the actual etymology of the word upeka, equanimity, means to look closely. Ik means to look, upa means to approach. So to look closely, because I find when I'm with my family, that's really helpful. Like if I'm with my sister, for example, or another family member for three days, most of the time it's just a lot of sankara. There's no real room to touch hearts at all. And I just have to kind of like upeka, like I'm just not gonna engage. I'm just gonna be cool. I'm gonna run away from this situation. But then I usually find if I'm watching closely, there's usually like two or three moments within those three days where I find myself sitting at a table with my sister and we both have a cup of coffee. And actually there's a chance for our hearts to genuinely touch. And I think that's a useful way of looking at Upeka is like keeping an eye out for those moments where you can break through. But then the rest of the time you just keep a careful distance and are aware of the deep forces at work. And part of that is rehearsing the argument before it happens and just knowing that it's probably going to happen. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, then you're prepared when it does, but just in the meantime, yeah, seeing if you can extend an olive branch to your sister in the future, uh, forgive yourself. And in the future, just be ready to disengage when that begins to ramp up or just say, look, I, I love you. We're getting activated. I don't want to play into this including gossiping at the sister and then pulling back and just meta, even if that means you have to put up boundaries around other interaction types. And uh, I think 
uh, Rob's popping on because I think we're getting near 8.30. So sorry Thank I talked so long. much. Yeah, good good luck, Robin. You're not alone. Thanks for the handout. That that is super helpful. Okay, good. Go handouts. <laughs>